Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Uh, It's good to be with you this morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. If you have your Bibles, uh, you're going to want to open them to Hebrews 11. You're going to want one today, too, so make sure you have a Bible. Uh, If you're listening to this online, I've always wanted to do this. If you're listening to this online and uh, it's later this weekend, you played hooky from church because it's Labor Day weekend, God is watching you. Uh, He knows what you did. Just kidding. I kid. Um, Anyway, uh, we're in the middle of a a teaching series called Heroes of Faith. Uh, We're going through Hebrews chapter 11 and we're taking a look at each person uh, in that chapter. And uh, as a preaching team, uh, we're kind of walking through and uh, describing how each hero or each person in that chapter uh, has demonstrated faith. And this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at a guy named Moses. Um, But first, I have a question for you this morning. And the question is this. Why do you endure in your faith in God? Why do you endure in your faith in God? Is endurance, is that word even a word you would use to describe your faith? Would you say, yeah, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about my faith in God is endurance. Have you ever faced moments in your life where it just seemed like everything around you was trying to get you to cast doubt on God? where everything around you is trying to get you to give up on God. For some of us, maybe if we're honest, we would even admit that there are times in our lives where God didn't seem worthy of putting our trust in. If we were to take off the church mask here for a second and be really, really honest with ourselves... I think many of us have faced experiences and and moments and occasions in our lives where it seemed like in the world out there and in our own world, it was so hard to see where God was doing anything. And in the deepest places of our hearts, again, if we were really, really honest, we would admit that we were ready to jettison this whole Christianity thing where it felt like we were being torn apart, that our faith was unraveling, that we were becoming unhinged, that who we thought God was was melting away, that we were ready to give up on Christ and on God. So the question remains for us this morning, why do we endure in our faith in God? Make no mistake, endurance is critical to the Christian faith. You, if you are a Christ follower, need endurance. If you've been following Jesus for longer than five minutes, you know that the pain in this life is going to tempt you to give up on the Lord, to throw in the towel. Some of you might not even believe in Christianity because you can't reconcile suffering 
with the God of the Bible. In our culture, it's so easy to trust in the comforts and the pleasures that come from this world rather than trusting in the pleasure that comes from Christ. Some of us in this room, again, can't see God working anywhere. So why do we endure? Endurance is critical and crucial to the Christian faith. If you're a Christ follower, again, it's imperative that you understand this. And I'll use this terminology this way. It's actually God's will for your life that you learn endurance. It's actually God's will for your life that you have a faith that endures. And by definition, endurance means that you can't take a class one time and learn it. You can't learn it by next week. You can't learn endurance through one trial or one moment or one occasion in your life. Endurance takes a lifetime to learn. But I don't think we want it that way. Most of us, if we're honest, we're like, God, give me that one trial, that one test, that one lesson. And then once I've proved I've had faith in you, I'm good. No more. Right? I'm good for the rest of my life. I'll see you when I die. Right? But endurance doesn't work that way. The people mentioned in Hebrews 11 actually had multiple moments where they demonstrated their faith. Why? Because endurance, a faith that endures, has been tested multiple times. I've been into running over the last uh, few uh, years, and um, running is, is a weird thing. I, I say I'm into running, but I'm probably not into running the way some of you all are. Please don't come and talk to me and be like, I've got this like 36-mile thing I want to do with you. I probably won't do it. Um, but uh, I've been sort of a semi-avid uh, runner, and uh, the thing that I've learned about running is that you get tested in endurance. Uh, And not just in like, okay, I ran two miles, can I run that third mile? That's not the kind of endurance I'm talking about. The endurance that I'm talking about is that after you've run, will you run tomorrow and the next day? Will you keep running when you have that first bout of shin splints, when the TV and the junk food and the couch is calling your name, when maybe you're not seeing some of the physical results that you want to see right off the bat? That's the endurance that I'm talking about. Faith is like a muscle that needs to be worked out. We think faith is more like a test that we need to pass, but faith is like a muscle that needs to be worked out. You can't go into the gym, hit the weights, and start working out, and then that be the only time you do it and be like, I'm good, I'm healthy for the rest of my life. Um, It doesn't work that way. And faith doesn't work that way. You can't just go through a, a moment in your life where your faith is tested and be good. At least not a faith that endures. And God wants to test us in this. He wants to work out our faith like a muscle so that it is strong, so that it can endure. This morning, we're going to see that Moses had a faith that could endure. So hopefully you got your Bibles and hopefully you're open to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to pick it up in verse 23. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, 
was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, before we unpack Moses, I need to set the stage here a little bit. There's a lot that I could talk about, so I kind of want to hone in uh, here this morning uh, a little bit. And if you read Genesis, uh, which is the first book of the Bible, you you find out very quickly that God is a God who makes promises. Uh, He promises a lot uh, to his people. And this morning, I want to look at just three of them. If you're familiar with the Bible, this first one you'll probably know. Uh, God promised to uh, a guy named Abraham that his descendants would be huge. Like there would be a lot of them, not fat. They would, they, there would be a lot of them. Uh, and uh, and, and God, God says, hey, look at the stars, right? Your descendants are going to be more than that. I'm going to multiply them. In fact, they're gonna be, there's going to be so many of them uh, that they are going to be a nation. The second promise is not as well known, but God actually tells Abraham in Genesis 15, hey, by the way, your descendants are going to go into a land not their own. They're going to be foreigners, and they're going to be there for 400 years, and they're going to be enslaved. Not really a promise I want to hear, but nevertheless, it was a promise that God had told Abraham. Well, fast forward to Jacob. So you got Abraham, you got Isaac, and then Jacob is Abraham's grandson. And God tells Jacob, hey, go down to Egypt, and this is the third promise, and I will be with you. I'm going down there with you. Well, Genesis ends, and there is 400 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. 400 years. I want us to pause there. And consider that like I think we read that promise that God gave to Abraham and in the second that it took us to read it We forget that how much history that is 400 years Like our country just hit half of that in its age We're talking entire generations have come and gone during this time And where is God on his promises? Well, if you read Genesis or uh, Exodus chapter 1, you find out that God is multiplying his people. It says it over and over and over again in Genesis or uh, Exodus chapter 1 that God is multiplying his people. So there's the first promise, God is fulfilling that. And because they get so big, Pharaoh actually feels threatened. And he's like, what if the Israelites or these Hebrew people uh, ally with our enemies? We would surely be defeated because they're starting to outnumber us. And so Pharaoh, because he feels threatened, enslaves them for 400 years. So there's the second promise that gets fulfilled. But the real question deals with this third promise. Is God still with them? I don't know about you, but if I was a Hebrew, I would begin to have doubts over this. Because things just seem to keep getting worse. Because in addition to the slavery, Pharaoh makes a command that all the Hebrew baby boys need to be killed. They need to be thrown into the Nile. 
And if I'm in that position, if I was walking through this, I would have some questions. God, what are you doing? Where are you? And are you still with us? Do you ever find yourself going through something in life where you want to say, I know God is in this. I want to believe that he is in this. I want to believe that God is still with me. But what I have to walk through right now just seems too hard to handle. It seems too severe. I didn't know that this and what God is doing in my life would be this demanding. It's too much to handle. Again, you put yourself as a Hebrew here, right? God, I knew you would multiply us. You promised that to Abraham. I knew you would take us to Egypt. And I knew we would be slaves. And I knew we'd be slaves for 400 years. And it's, I didn't really want to do that, but I, you had promised that. But are you still with us? Because things just seem to be getting worse. Pharaoh's trying to exterminate us. Where are you? I can't handle this. You think the Israelites were learning what it meant to have a faith that endured during this time? Well, enter onto the scene of this story, not Moses, but some very brave women in this story. Flip over to Exodus chapter 2. Unfortunately, I think most of what we know uh, about uh, Moses and the Exodus story comes from movies rather than scripture, right? Uh, we tend to believe more facts about Prince of Egypt uh, and Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments uh, than we do the scripture. Or for you millennials, that horrible Exodus movie with CGI Moses and green screen plagues. And um, Anyways, the one with Christian Bale, right? Batman dude? Uh, don't watch it. I don't recommend it. Um, anyways, uh, you're preaching a sermon, John. All right, Exodus 2. Verses 1 through 10. It says this. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women <clears throat> walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of water. Now, if you read this on its face value and try to put yourself in the story, you can see that this was incredibly planned, right? Like women tend to do, this was well thought out. 
this was a very, very good plan. It's not like Moses' mom just randomly threw Moses into this little basket and dropped him into the raging part of the Nile next to the crocodiles and the hungry, hungry hippos and the huge boa constrictors, and it just magically made its way down the rapids to Pharaoh's daughter. That's not what happened here. Uh, they strategically picked a spot uh, where they knew the, uh, the royal court of Pharaoh would probably come and see this, and they hoped against all odds, that they would take pity on this baby and that they would, uh, Moses would come under the protection of uh, the Egyptian court and be saved. And you, and you see Moses' sister there, right? She's in on this. She's waiting to kind of see what happens. And I could just see her kind of hanging out behind the papyrus weeds. And when the baby's discovered, she kind of pops out and is like, hey, I know someone who can nurse that baby. Like, I mean, that, that's probably how this went, right? It was a well-thought-out plan. And Moses is saved because of it. This is insane. This is a crazy story. Because in the middle of terrible suffering, in the midst of a harsh enslavement, 400 years of brutality, a life too hard to handle, and a massive genocide, the very place that Pharaoh was killing baby boys, Moses gets saved. And a few women defied the greatest ruler in the world because they trusted in the creator of the world. Why? Well, as we read this morning, Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, his mom and his sister as well, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, let me say something. And I think this might rock a little bit of us, but that's okay. You can talk, about, uh, talk to me about it afterwards. It's my belief that fear is not a sin. Being afraid is not a sin. Fear is not a sin. It's what fear leads to. Because when life is too hard to handle, a fear of God actually leads to faith where we relinquish control to God and we step out in obedience, even if that means it costs us. It could have cost everyone involved in trying to save Moses, including Pharaoh's daughter, including the slave girl, including Moses' sister, including Moses' mother. All of those people could have been killed because they're breaking the edict of the king. And yet they trusted However, when life is too hard to handle, I think sometimes for many of us, we can develop a fear of man. And that leads to distrust of God. And we step out not in obedience, but in disobedience. And that will always cost us. Don't we see this play out in our world? Don't we see that when life hits and it's too hard to handle... Rather than trusting God and putting our faith in Him, we trust in ourselves. And that always turns into some disobedience in our lives. Let me give you some examples. Maybe when we lose a loved one, or when we lose a friend, rather than trusting in the Lord to provide comfort for us, we trust in ourselves to provide comfort for us. And we turn to a bottle, uh, alcohol. And we drown our sorrows away in that. Or maybe for some of us, 
we have financial troubles. And rather than trusting that God is going to provide, we trust in ourselves and we cheat. Maybe we log our hours that we didn't really work or we cheat on our taxes and claim things that we didn't really earn. Or for some of us, maybe we desperately want to get married, but God hasn't brought that person into our lives yet. And rather than trusting his timing, we trust in ourselves. And we step out in disobedience and we have sex outside of marriage. You see how this works? Rather than trusting in God and having a fear of him that leads to obedience, many of us have a fear of man and we trust in ourselves. And that leads to disobedience. And when life is too hard to handle, oftentimes that creeps up in our lives. There's a saying among church folk that God won't give you more than you can handle. (laughs) Horrible saying. Baloney. Hogwash. Poppycock. Whatever word you want to use, use. There are words I would like to use for that statement, but I want to preach again. And if I use them, they might not let me do that. (laughs) That is a lie that God won't give you more than you can handle. Life will always present circumstances and events in your lives that will be more than you can handle. But here's what God does promise. When life is more than you can handle, God will be right there in the middle of it. He doesn't love you at arm's length. God will literally be in the midst of your life when it's too hard to handle. He'll literally be walking with you sharing that burden, walking that road of suffering. He'll be with you. Toby is an elder here at our church. He's become a good friend of mine and a good mentor. And uh, he's been, uh, we're going through Philippians and youth group. And he taught the students this last week. Uh, and he said something really profound. He said that God doesn't work in spite of our suffering. He works through our suffering. And I'd like to just tag on to his uh, great statement there is that not only does God work through our suffering, but God is right there in the middle of it, sharing the burden, walking alongside us. I don't know about you, but that truth gives me a great foundation to have a faith that endures. We'll flip over to Acts 7. we need to take a look at some other details of the story. Here's one of the things I love about the scriptures. Uh, They're the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. And what I mean by that is oftentimes you're going to run across topics or people or situations that get mentioned in a particular book, but they also get mentioned in other books. And what's really good is to do a survey of the whole scripture and see where these other uh, events or people or, or circumstances are mentioned elsewhere and connect the dots because you're going to be able to put more of a, a story together. You're going to be able to fill in some details that you might not always get. Moses is definitely one of those uh, persons. Uh, if you read and survey the rest of scripture, uh, you'll, you'll be able to get some other detail that will help fill in the story in Exodus. Um, and we're going to see some of that this morning. My Wi-Fi just totally kicked off here, so let me get my slides. All right. Um, 
So before we read uh, in Acts 7, uh, where we're going to get some other details, I just want to give you some more information. One uh, is that Moses actually has two identities. Moses has two identities that we learn from Acts. His first identity is that he is a Hebrew. He, he grew up with his mom, didn't he, didn't he not? He grew up, and he, so he would have learned about who he was as a Hebrew, as, as a Hebrew man. Uh, his mom would have taught him about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who had made these promises, the God 400 years before who had worked in these men's uh, lives. His second identity would have been that of an Egyptian. Uh, Acts 7 actually tells us that he had access to all the wisdom and wealth and knowledge of Egypt. That's, this was the greatest nation on earth at this time. And so Moses had a world-class education, and it also says that he excelled, which means this guy would have had great leadership potential. This guy would have been a, a, a grade-A student, somebody that uh, a lot of people looked up to. But then, in Hebrews, as we read this morning, it says this, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. Guys, suffering has great power to rob us of a faith that endures. But perhaps an even greater power exists in the pleasures of this world to rob us of a faith that endures. And the reason I think the pleasures of this world possess greater power is because they can tend to rob us blind. We don't always see it coming. And it's often a slower process. We tend to drift towards the pleasures of this world. We tend to be captivated by the pleasures of this world. And it's a slower process. And and we tend to maybe say, oh, yeah, I still trust the Lord. But if we were to take an honest look at our lives, functionally, we're trusting in our stuff. We're trusting in the people that we love. Maybe for some of us in Colorado, we're trusting in uh, all the extracurricular activities we can do in our amazing state. And we're expecting those things to satisfy us the only way that the pleasure we can find in Christ can. We're expecting the things of this world and the pleasures that they bring to match the pleasure that can only be found in Christ. That is idolatry. And idolatry is the root problem or the core of all sin. It's expecting something else to be God in your life and fulfill you the only way God can. But the foundation of faith is when we get to a place where we can say, there is no other pleasure like the one I have in Christ. There is nothing else in this world that compares to Christ. I would trade the world for the pleasure that I have in Christ. See, see, that's what's unique about Christianity. Christianity isn't stoicism. When I'm talking about endurance, I'm not talking about a gutted out mentality where you just have to buck up underneath the storms of life. Christianity offers you a trade. The world for God. And when you come to the scales, what will happen in your life? Will the pleasures of this world go high or will Christ go high? Will Christ be found worth more 
or will the pleasures of this world be worth more? And make no mistake, you're going to be tested in this. A faith that endures can't really know the pleasure found in Christ unless it's weighed against the pleasures of the world. And the world is to be found wanting. All right, Acts 7. Let's get into the rest of the story. Hey, guys, my slide, I don't know what's happening in this. So I'm just going to let you guys control it from back there. Um, Acts 7. This will fill in some of the details about our story of Moses. Starting in verse 23. When he, this is Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So here's the crazy part of this story. Moses literally gave up all the pleasures he could have in Egypt. He gave up all the pleasures that were offered to him growing up as a son of Egypt. He literally rejected his Egyptian identity and embraced fully his Hebrew identity, where he literally got down in the mud and started making bricks and became a slave along with his Hebrew people. That's where this story starts to spiral into even more craziness because Moses makes a horrible mistake. He actually kills an Egyptian. And in doing so, the Hebrew people reject him. Now, if you put these stories together, bring in the, bring in the Hebrews part that we read this morning on Hebrews 11 and bring in the Exodus Two part. There seems to be a contradiction. Because the Hebrews 11 says that Moses wasn't afraid of the Pharaoh when he fled Midian. But if you read the Exodus account, it says that he was afraid when he found when it was discovered that he was a murderer. I don't know about you, but if it found out that I was a murderer, I would probably be a little frightened too. Uh, so so that's that's what's happening here. Is it a contradiction? Which is true? I would argue that both are. I think Moses was initially afraid when it was discovered that he was a murderer. I think he was initially afraid. But I think he, even deeper than that, I think he was afraid because now he was a man without an identity. Because the Hebrew people had rejected him. But he couldn't go back to the Egyptian people. Or could he? Could he go back to the Egyptian people? I like to think that he could. I mean, let's consider this for a second. Moses is the son of a Pharaoh. Certainly he could have gone to Pharaoh and be like, Hey, pops, uh, I I killed the guy. I'm sorry. The anger got the best of me. You're Pharaoh. Can you just cover this up? Can you just make sure this goes away and and I'll come back and I'm sorry. Let's, Let's make this happen, right? 
I would like to believe that Pharaoh probably would go along with that. Pharaoh would be like, oh, I totally get it. I killed a guy last week and had to cover that up. And um, so I, I understand. Like, uh, th- this is just, from what we know from history, this is kind of the way royalty worked. If they didn't like you, they killed you. Um, and they covered it up if they wanted to. But what's remarkable is not that Moses flees Egypt. It's that he doesn't stay. Because Moses could have done that. But he again chooses to deny the pleasures that could have been offered to him in Egypt. And that's why he flees. Not holding on to any identity. Because the Hebrew people have rejected him. And the Egyptian people he gave up. He's a man without an identity and a man without a homeland. Except he has one thing. And that's God. That's why he wasn't afraid when he fled. Because he had the Lord. How often in the face of rejection do we look to the world's pleasures and expect them to give us the acceptance that only we can find in Christ? For many of us, we will never know a faith that endures until the only pleasure we have left is the one we have in Christ. So, Exodus 2 ends with Moses sitting on a rock, watching some some sheep, because he's a shepherd. He's a fugitive on the run for murder. He's a man without a homeland. He's a man without an identity. And he's 80 years old. All you seasoned veterans need to hear the age I just spoke. Moses is 80 years old when Exodus 2 ends. He was a leader with so much promise, but now it seems like he's a has-been. That everything that has happened in his life just seems all so wasted. But Hebrews 11 says this, and it's the last verse we read out of that Hebrews 11 passage. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, I've got two questions, two questions that come to mind. Number one, why is Moses enduring at this point? Dude, it's eight, you're 80 years old. It's been 40 years since you were last in Egypt. I think God gave up on you, right? You, you, throw in the towel, give up. It's over. Uh, you're, you're not even in Egypt anymore. And plus, the Hebrew people have rejected you. How... How is God going to use you? Because here's what I find fascinating if you read that Acts 7 passage again, is that Moses, at least in some part, knew that he was the redeemer, that he was the savior, that he was the leader who was going to take Israel out of Egypt. He knew that when he was in Egypt, when he grew up. Uh, That's what Acts 7 says anyways. And so that has to be going through his mind at the end of Acts 2 of like, I'm just a failed leader. I I never amounted to what I was supposed to. So why is he enduring? The second thing, the second question I have is, what is Moses looking at? It says that Moses was looking at him who is invisible. That makes no sense to me. If you're invisible, that means I can't see you. How can I look at you? That makes no sense. I'm left with only one conclusion. And that's this. Moses endured 
Because he must have been looking at God's faithfulness. He knew that God had multiplied the Hebrew people. He knew that God had told the Hebrew people they would be slaves and foreigners in a land for 400 years. He knew that God had told Jacob that uh, God would be with the people in, uh, in Egypt. And so I believe that Moses, because he had, was looking at the faithfulness of God, he, can, he could endure to believe another promise that God had given to Abraham. <clears throat> and that was that God would lead the people out of Egypt. And catch this. Moses trusted that God would do this even if Moses never got to see it in his lifetime. In fact, I'll take it a step further. I believe that Moses still believed this even if he wasn't the guy for the job anymore. I believe that Moses was willing to go to his grave believing that God was still going to do this for the Israelite people. And certainly, don't we see that Moses must have thought that he wasn't the guy anymore because at the burning bush, look at all the excuses he gives. And yet God still fulfilled this promise, even if Moses couldn't see it, even if he wasn't going to see it in his lifetime. He still believed. A faith that endures believes God is faithful to his promises, even if we never see it. Moses was prepared to die an obscure shepherd, a fugitive and a foreigner, a dot on history. And yet he still believed that God would somehow, some way, remain faithful to his promises. That is endurance. But there is one who showed even greater endurance than Moses. There is one that showed even more endurance than Moses. Jesus Christ is not a savior who reached down from an ivory tower and pulled this out. Jesus is a savior who knows what it's like to walk in the midst of our lives because he put on human flesh and he came down and he walked among us. Therefore, he knows what it's like to be somebody who endures. Jesus was born into a time where God had been silent for 400 years. Sound familiar? It was at a time where the, the Hebrew people were actually oppressed. They didn't have control over their own country. Sound familiar? And in fact, a king, a wicked king, had actually declared that baby boys in Israel should be killed. Sound familiar? And then, he, and then uh, uh, Jesus actually fled during this time to a place. Where, where did he flee to? He fled to Egypt. How ironic. And in his life, Jesus knew what it was like to have a life that was too hard to handle. According to Hebrews, we actually find out that Jesus actually cried out in prayer. Tears. Just like the Hebrew people did at the end of Exodus 2. Don't we see that in the garden? That Jesus cried out to God that he would save him. And in his life, Jesus gave up the pleasures of not just Egypt. He gave up the pleasures of the world. Satan offered him everything in this world. And yet Jesus says no. And oh, by the way, Jesus does that even though he is being rejected by the Hebrew people. He is a man who had no home and no identity. 
but he clung to what he had in God. And in his life, Jesus was prepared to die. An obscure carpenter, another leader of a failed movement, falsely accused of crimes he did not commit, but he endured, and he believed that somehow, some way, God would save the world and fulfill that promise. I got one more verse that I want to read to you. It's in Hebrews 12. If you're familiar with the Bible or church, you know these verses, and some of you may know them by heart. But Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to close with this. Don't miss the point of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is not saying that Jesus is an example that you need to follow. It's not like, hey, Jesus endured in faith. You need to go and do likewise. If Jesus was just an example, he would be listed in Hebrews 11, not Hebrews 12. So why is Jesus greater than Moses? It isn't because he's just an example of faith. It's because he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. This means that without Jesus, there is no reason to endure. Because you'll end up in the ground six feet under just like everyone else. But because of Jesus and because of the fact that he endured, he actually paved a way for us to get to God, to defeat the grave. That means that when you endure, it's worth it because in the end, you get God. And there's two things that you get according to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. One is the joy of Christ. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples, I will give you my joy and it will never be taken away from you. If it means it never be taken away from you, then that means I'm going to live forever. Jesus paved that way so that I could get the joy that is Christ. Not my joy, his joy. I get that. He gives that to me if I endure. And the second thing is, and believe this or not, this is crazy. According to Revelation... If we endure, Jesus will actually extend to us a place at his throne where we can rule and reign alongside him. Man, that is why Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. When life is too hard to handle, when the pleasures of this world seem better than the pleasures of Christ, and even when we can't see God at work, we can look to Christ who has secured every reason to believe. May we ever increase in our endurance and may we run this race with faith. Would you pray with me? God, I pray. I ask, God, that the words, there were many of them said today. I pray that the ones that are from you would rest on the hearts of the people here today. And that your Holy Spirit would do the work that I am incapable of doing. And the words that were said that were not of you, God, I pray that they would have fallen on deaf ears. God, when life is hard, 
and when we can't handle it. God, would you, in the inner parts of who we are, reveal to us that no matter what we will face, God will be there with us every step of the way. God, that when the pleasures of this world tempt us and weaken our perspective on the pleasure that is found in you, would we obey the hymn that the, world, that the pleasures of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of your presence and grace? And God, when it's so hard to see you, when we're looking down at our world and we're seeing how crazy it is and we don't know where you are, God, would we look up to the cross? And would we see that if the only thing that we had was Jesus, it would be more than enough to run the race of endurance. To know that you are not taking history blindly into the future. That it hasn't run off the rails. That you are a God who is sovereign and in control. You are a God that is faithful to your promises even when we can't see it. And oh God, I beg that you would increase our endurance. That we would be in it for the long game. That Jesus wouldn't just be a phase in our lives, but that we would all get to 80 like Moses and say, even though I don't have an identity, even though I don't have a homeland, even though life was more than I could have handled, even when I couldn't see God, even when the pleasures of this world were offered to me, I hung on. I believed. I had faith that God is the God he says he is. And would you do a work in our people? It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Well, you're dismissed, but before you go, I uh, just wanted to let you know, uh, for those of you that are maybe visiting or for those of you that have been around our church, you know this, that we're actually in the middle of a pastoral search. We're looking for uh, a new lead pastor. Uh, we have some congregational surveys that we would appreciate if you filled out for us. They will help our leadership uh, better determine uh, uh, how to go and, and give them good data and uh, a ground to work from. Uh, so if you go online, we would ask that you would do it there. But if you're like, what's the Internet? Uh, we do have uh, uh, hard copy forms at the information desk. So go in God's grace.